Good morning, church. Today's we've got two Bible readings. The first one's from 1 Peter 5, starting at verse 4 through to 4, uh, 1 through to 4. So to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of God's suffering, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. The second reading is from 1 Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, starting at verse 2 through to 7. So now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do this in a manner of worthy, a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with the outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. That's fantastic. Good morning, everyone. Uh, yes, uh, it is quite an honour to have reached the point in my uh, career, I guess, for lack of a better word, as a pastor where I am quoted by others. Uh, <laughs> it's not quite how I envisaged it in my, my greater... Fantasy moments of grandeur, but thank you, Ryan. <laughs> Appreciate it nonetheless. Uh, welcome, everybody. Great to have you with us this morning. I'm Etienne. I'll, I'll, I'll take us through the next bit of this service. Um, if you're a visitor with us, you're, you're ca catching us in the middle of a somewhat unique series where we're plumbing into some of the questions around what is church, and this would be number oh, four, five, I think, four, five-ish in the, in the series, number five. Um, yeah, so, so we've... We've touched on a number of things in the, in the lead-up. We've, we've spoken about the church as, as, as the gathering of God's people. It gathers for a specific purpose. God speaks to his people, his people speaks to them. Uh, and this is all possible because of the sacrifice of Jesus. We spoke about the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, God is encountered, his presence is encountered as we gather in this temple. We spoke of the church as an imperfect kind of a body. It's mixed. It's not quite what it will one day be in perfection. We touched last week on the church as the body of Christ, which means the church has a, 
an exquisite intimacy with Jesus as members of his own body, as it's joined to him. And we spoke about how this body uh, is used. If Jesus wants to get something done on earth, he chooses this body to do it. And to that end, he has equipped this body with various things to be able to do what it needs to do. Now, today, what I want to do is, both today and next week, I want to talk a little bit more about how Jesus has equipped this body around a couple of things. But before I do that, kids, um, you are with us today. It's great that you're with us. I love that you're in church. And I want to help you to also get something out of today. To that end, I put some blank sheets of paper in the back of the auditorium. And I might ask if someone, maybe Christine, you're the closest to just sort of help dishing those out. Kids, I want you to draw one of two things for me. If you, depending on your age, for the young ones, can you draw for me just a picture of a body? All right? Um, just a picture of a body. That's okay. If you're a little bit older and you can think a little bit more artistic or abstract, the church is the body of Christ. Can you try and draw something for me that pictures that, pictures the whole church as the body of Christ. I don't know how you would do that. I have ideas of how I might do that, but you, you surprise me. How can you, how can you um, show that? Maybe a body with... Anyway, you do it. Okay, so, so, so feel free, kids. This is your moment. Right now, you can just go to the back and, and Christine might hand you a piece of paper and grab some textures uh, or things like that and that'll kind of just give you something to concentrate on for the, for the message. Actually, adults, you can grab one too, by the way, if it's helping you to focus. While these get handed out, I'll... I'll just recap something that we said last week that it's helpful to keep in the back of your mind as we, as we delve into today. Jesus has given his body two types of gifts, we said last week. Two groups, if you like. One was called the, the grace gifts or the charismata. These are abilities and every single person in God's church is, is given some ability to help the body to do what it needs to do. They're all equal. They're all highly important and equally important in the church. And then there's this different group of gifts that are not abilities, rather they are people or they are roles that God has given the church. Uh, body parts, if you like, that are uh, roles or the churchy word for the roles um, is office, an office, or an o the offices of the church, right? So, so you've got abilities, and you've got people or roles, and they're the types of parts or gifts that God has given the body to do what it needs to do. So, today I want us to sit on this question of the roles, because, in fact, today and next week we'll do that, not because the roles are so important, but I think there's so much um, confusion around it. 
And I want to clarify that. And I want to hopefully, in God's grace, come to a point where we see something about the, um, the beauty and, and straighten out perhaps some of the misconceptions around it today and next week. So we're going to talk about the, the roles, the offices. Let me start by just asking, we're just going to answer questions today. What are the offices and what are they supposed to do? Okay. Here's number one. What, are, what actually are the roles or the domata, the, 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 the gifts in terms of roles that people fill in the church that God has given to the church? It's a great place to start. We read in Ephesians this verse, Christ himself gave, and then he lists a number of things. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. I don't want to spend a lot of time this morning on this, but I will do it as a background because it's a question that we might want to ask. Apostles, you would want to ask the question, where are the apostles in the church today then? If this is a role that God has given the church, who are the apostles in Pathway? Where are the apostles in the church, any church today? Should there be a team of apostles in Pathway to Life? Will we vote on and appoint? In fact, that'll be true for all of these things that are mentioned there. Should there be a team of prophets who we nominate, vote on and appoint, and they meet and they have a ministry? It's, it's, a, it's a structural role. Or evangelists, or teachers, pastors, right? That's the, that's the background that we question that we must sit with here. One by one, apostles, uh, they were quite unique in the New Testament. They were unique in the sense that the meaning of the word apostle is the one who is being sent. Now, in a sense, every Christian is sent to the world. But the original apostles, qualification for that was that they were directly sent by Jesus. They knew him, they encountered him. Paul is the only guy that's a little bit different. He was sent by Jesus in a somewhat unique way. But that's it. Very significantly in the New Testament, when the apostles died, they made no attempt to replace themselves with successors as apostles. We have no account of that. They seem to have understood their role in history was somewhat unique. And therefore, that's kind of where it ends. At least that's, I think, the best way to understand apostles. These original ones laid a foundation. They were the ones who knew Jesus, walked with Jesus, set up the, the foundations of the church. Right? But what about prophets? Um, yeah, briefly and one by one. Prophets... It depends on how you define prophecy. Prophecy involves not just predicting the future. In fact, the vast majority of what prophecy involves in Scripture is actually looking back. It's actually reminding God's people of who God is, how he wants them to live, getting them to return back to being faithful to him. And so to a degree... All preaching and teaching includes that element or should include that element of prophecy anyway. But there is a unique ability given to some people to discern in any given situation what God is doing 
and how his word applies to that situation. We read of that in the New Testament. We see it operating in the pages of the early church. And I think we should expect to see that functionally in the church today as well. We're not told of the early church appointing prophets like they've appointed other officers. We're not told of, of, of in a formal or a structural sense that there were uh, formal ministries that we might say like an appointed team whose job it is to prophesy. Yet they were there in the church. They were designated people who at various times helped the body to discern the will of God as it lived out its purpose. In some way, and I'm not going to be very helpful here with details, but in some way I think that can and should in a biblical and balanced way still be part of the life of God's church. I think some people still would be given that ability. And one way or another in the way the church operates should find its way into the life of the church, right? And I'll say more about it later, but for now, let's leave it there. There's not a, an office that is appointed, but still a part of the church. You could say the same for evangelists. We don't have an appointed team of evangelists, but God does sometimes call people to mission work. We do set aside some people sometimes to do the exact or, or more concentrated or focused work of, uh, of evangelism or missions. And that's where we commission missionaries to go out. Uh, the New Testament church did that as well. Uh, I think that too somehow should find a place in the life of the body of Christ today. Yet again, we don't read an overt amount in the New Testament of this being done as a formal, set, structural thing in the church, but they are there and they are unique and set apart. Pastors, we'll get to later. Teachers, teachers are interesting. We're going to talk a lot about teaching today still to come. Just when it mentions here that God gave the church teachers, it's not talking about teaching, let's say, the Bible or anything about God in a general sense. In the early church, there were appointed teachers. They were the licensed teachers of the church, appointed. And the reason why was, remember, they didn't have a Bible. The only deposit of how you know who God is and, and what God has done and who Jesus is, is is from the teachers. So there was a very serious role. The church said, we've got to appoint people to this role. It's a good question what that role looks like today in the church. And I'll unpack a little bit more of how it's connected to eldership as we go forward. Uh, but for now, just take it that there were appointed teachers in the New Testament church. Okay, that's what we have, uh, more or less. You could probably add others, but apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. I'm dealing with this part of the sermon, not to be overly detailed, but I want, you may have questions about those things. You know, Where are these people? If these are the roles, what do they look like today in today's church? 
Perhaps the more pressing question is, what about elders? I mean, in this church, there are only two formal offices. Elders and deacons. Deacons we'll talk about in weeks to come as we appoint new deacons. Today I just want to really sit on elders for a bit. The interesting thing is that elders aren't mentioned in this list of the roles that God gives to his church. It's not mentioned in the other list as well that we looked at last week from Romans. So how do we get here? How do we get to a point where when we look at the body of Christ... And the one remaining role that we see very prominent in the church today, our church at least, or churches like ours, how do we get there? They're not even in the, <laughs> in the lists. Well, let's go. It's a good question. Let me take you for a, a quick whip through why we have it. Before I do, a little bit of terminology. Um, when the Bible talks about elders... It uses different words to describe them, different Greek words. They're all present in this part that Peter read to us. Um, one is the word presbyter or presbyteros. That's where we get the Presbyterian model of church from. It means elder, right? Then there's another word called episkopos, right? That's where we get the Episcopalian model of church from. That word literally means overseer or leader. Then there's another word, shepherd, that's used. People have, over time, made efforts to break this down into distinct roles or even separate roles. I don't think that's true. I think they mean the same thing. They're used interchangeably when it talks about an elder, a shepherd, or an overseer. It's talking about the same person. We call it elder. We could call it overseer. We could call it shepherd. We could call it any of those names. Same role that we're talking about. Okay, So I'll, I'll throw that out just for a clarification. Why do we have them? Well, let's do the rip around here quickly in the, in the New Testament. I'll read some verses for us. Acts chapter 11. When gifts were given to the Jerusalem church, they did it, sending their gifts to the elders in the Jerusalem church. They were there. When Paul and Barnabas go out to do the work of evangelists and new churches are started, we read that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for those churches in each church. And with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. The next one is very interesting. In Titus, we read that as they planted churches in a place called Crete, it's almost like the work of church planting wasn't quite finished because they haven't appointed elders in the churches yet. Paul writes to Titus. He says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. Interesting, at the big council in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15, call that to mind if you went to church with us in the Acts series. 
Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. And once they've reached the conclusion of the whole Jerusalem council, when they sent the letter out to all the churches, the letter starts with the apostles and elders. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament do you see apostles acting alone. They seem to always act with elders at every stage, in every place. And the expectation is, as has already been seen there, that, um, oh, sorry, apostles see themselves as fellow elders, 1 Peter. And then in Timothy, Paul writes, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. That's code for don't be hasty in appointing elders. The expectation in the New Testament is that there will be elders. The expectation is that elders will be appointed. And as the apostles go, elders would be appointed for the work. And as one generation of elders die, a next generation will be appointed. It is the one thing that is so clear over the New Testament that is there as a, as a, as a role or an office that is beyond dispute. You cannot look past it. I wonder even if it's just assumed that the church would have elders. When I invite you to a picnic, and I say the picnic is going to be at the bluff, you all know what I'm talking about, right? You all know where I'm inviting you to. I don't have to specify that it is the Mersey bluff that I'm inviting you to. We know that. And it's a little bit for me like the New Testament just assumes this thing about eldership. It's nowhere specified that, or told that this is how God has had it in mind forever, that every church should, by way of a policy statement, appoint elders. They're just there, all over the place. <laughs> and there's all these incidences that we can go through and say, well, clearly, this is the way the church worked. And therefore, a reasonable assumption to make that God has gifted his body, the church, with the role of elders. Okay, so that's why we have them. That's, that's the basis for it. But then the next question is, to move on, what do elders do? Why do we have them? Why did God give them for his church? We go to Timothy. Can I ask you, maybe give me some feedback from the, from the crowd. What strikes you about this list? Paul says, if you're going to appoint elders, this is what you should look for. Anything, just go for it as you scan it. No one is suitable. <laughs> yeah, every, every, every person who would look at that would go, well, I don't know. Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, no person would tick all those boxes. Yeah, yep. Yep. So we want people who aren't perfect, but perhaps people whose lives are being changed by Jesus to reflect those things. Yeah. Thank you, Tom. Anything else? It's interesting that it doesn't comment when it says what you should look for in elders a great deal about what elders should do. Thanks, Mary. Everyone should aim for those things, absolutely. Yes, that should be the aim for every Christian. Yeah, yeah. I think what's very fascinating about this is that 
tells us that God is interested in who we are as people. And that is particularly true for leaders. God is not interested in the skills of an elder. God is not interested in big resumes, whether an elder can manage a company, whether they're successful at any managerial things in the corporate world. God's interested in their character. God's interested in whether their character is moving towards Jesus, if it's being changed or shaped into his likeness. This is what he's far more interested in than their skills or or, or their, their rap sheet of what they can do, right? Nevertheless, there's two things. In fact, there's only two things that he asks elders to do. And here they are. Teaching and governing or leading. Right? Did you catch that in the list? He must be able to teach. He must manage his own family well. Let's hover on those two things for a bit. When it says elders should teach or must be able to teach, he's not talking about preaching. He's not talking about a range of, not even the gift of teaching among the grace gifts. Right? So you can have elders, I mean, take our elders at the moment. There's three of our elders who can preach. There's three who probably can, but they, well, they would think they can't, but <laughs> they don't. What does it mean for them as elders to teach? Or be able to teach. What's God's expectation of elders on this point? Be a role model. Be a role model? Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. That would be true. Yeah. Yeah. Not to be new. Yes, absolutely. Yep. So they need to. Understand God, know God, and able to do that, right? Yes. And I think we're going to add to that that God expects elders to, to be involved in the teaching of the church in, in two ways. Number one is, is passively. Passively. Let's say I told you today, it's not really important to be faithful to your spouse. God just wants you to be happy. You don't have to be faithful to the person you're married to. That's false teaching, right? (laughs) Really false teaching. It's the job of someone to point that out to me, right? (laughs) Now, I would bet that if I was to do that, the community is going to tell me that anyway, in a very organic sense, as we want it, as it should be. But let's say I disagree with you and I go, who are you? I'm an elder. You're just a member of this community. How do you know what's false teaching and what's not? Whose job is it? Straighten that out. It's the elders. It is going to be those, those guys' job who you go to. And, and I think God expects elders to take responsibility in that sense for the teaching that goes on in the church. You can only do that if you yourself know what should be taught. Right? Elders must be able to teach. They must know the gospel. 
They must understand what is the word of God that the apostles handed down to us so that they can, as part of their role, in a passive sense, keep that on track. It's very important. Anna and Marty, quiet please. Right? But not only passively, I think they should also be actively involved. Well, every elder might not preach or have a gift of teaching, Every elder in some way ought to be able to explain who God is, what he's like, to their, old, to their own children at least. I've met elders who couldn't broach a spiritual conversation with their wives, with their children. I think that's a problem. I think Jesus expects elders at the very least to be able to <laughs> talk about God to, to those in their own household. And then from there we could add a number of other forums, whether it's one-on-one mentoring, where they catch up pastorally with people and talk about God in those forums, whether it's in small group leadership, whether it's in service leading here, that has a certain sense where we, we, we teach and we, we share about who God is. Okay, that's, those are all the ways in which I think, at a minimum, God expects elders to be teachers of his people. That's one thing he asks. Second thing is, is leading or, or governing. I'll ask you a question here again. What is it that the scripture says elders should be able to lead well? Why is that significant, do you think? Yeah, their family. Yeah, sure. God's church is a bigger family. Yeah. That's a good question. Can you be then single and being an elder? Yeah. I want to I touch on that. I'll get to that in a minute. But, but the whole idea of family is it takes a unique kind of leadership to lead a family well. It doesn't take a type A army general to lead a family well who's very successful at governing and leading but his children hate him, has no respect for him. It takes a shepherd, someone who by the grace of God can learn to love children and, 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 and by humble, self-sacrificing, foot-washing, earn the respect and love and trust of those whom he is supposed to lead. It's a very unique kind of a leader. Isn't it significant that that is the leader who God seeks for his church? Very, very insightful. Eldership is about shepherding. Eldership is about loving, about serving, and we can go on and on about that. It's, it's, it's striking. question about can single people then be elders? Yes, I think they can, because I think they too are part of a family one way or another. And how do they lead in the context, whether it's the family they belong to as a child or as a, an extended family or even in the church family? The underlying characteristic is we're looking for a leader who is humble, selfless and earns trust and respect of those closest to him. Single people can do that, absolutely. All right, they're the two things that, that we see God expects elders to do. He expects our elders here to be responsible for the teaching of pathway. They don't have to be the ones gifted in it. Other gifted people can 
do publicly most of it. At some level, they have to be actively involved, but they are ultimately responsible for it as a whole. Number two, to govern, to lead, like shepherds, like good fathers. That's their job. That's their role. Now let me move to a conclusion by asking two questions before I wrap up. First question, what about you, the bold guy, who is a paid elder? Where does that come from? Should the church even have that? Right? It's a very good question. Let me first say something on that note. I, as a pastor, am nothing but an elder here. You might be new to church, might be new to this church, and it's important to clarify. Our elders who are appointed has in every single way the exact same authority as I do. We've been there already before in this series. I'll just reiterate it. If there's a problem in our church, and it never has come to this, and I am doubtful it will, that we need to cast a vote on an issue, and three elders vote one way, and two elders vote the other way, and I'm one of the two, the vote will go the way the three voted. Because I bear no, no special authority in that. None whatsoever. Right? And I think that's a wonderful thing about God's church, that this is how he structures his leadership teams. Because I think it's how he himself leads. He himself is a leadership team. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It requires love, humility to lead like that. Not authority. And that's the stunning thing about this whole thing. Still the question remains, how do we justify having a paid pastor? Okay? Well, there's different ways of interpreting this. Biblically speaking, some Christians are saying, well, in the Old Testament, this is very much the way God's people worked. There were set aside people who led the church of the Old Testament, Levites and so forth. There's precedent for it there. The New Testament is rather silent on it. It doesn't tell us you should pay pastors. It doesn't tell us we should not pay pastors. It's like it's left to the church to work out. We've got examples of pastors who've worked and earned their own living. We've got examples of... Well, actually, we don't. We've got assumptions of others who didn't. We're not really told. And so it's really coming down to a matter of wisdom for the church to work this out. The practical reasons for paying one elder is to buy time. It's to say we need time, give someone time to do some of the vital functions that we believe is important in the life of the church. Not because they're more important, but because this is a wise way for us to be taught, be led in some of the critical things. So it's a practical decision, one of wisdom that we think but I put it to you, it carries pros and cons. What are some pros of paying elders to do their job? Just yell them out, maybe, if you have one. Time, I've already mentioned it. It's just about time. Very hard to provide for a family and 
do well. Yep. How do you develop expertise? Develop expertise, so training. Uh, training takes time, uh, significant time if you want to be well trained, well built up. Uh, you've got to be set aside for that, yes. Yeah. What are cons? What are some cons, some negatives of having paid elders? Mm. It looks <laughs> like this is important. As soon as we add, attach a monetary value to something. Yep, totally. Yeah, <laughs> stupid use of money. <laughs> uh, we can, we can, yeah, I mean, let's be honest. Your, our budget is a significant component tied to paying me. In fact, the single biggest commitment, right, in any one thing. It's a huge thing. Yeah. Yeah. So other sometimes other elders, uh, uh, high expectations are placed on them, but they are not set aside or freed up to do it. So the high burnout rates often in key leaders and volunteers. Absolutely. Yeah. It stifles often the upbuilding and coming up of the charismata, the grace gifts that God has given to His church. Why? Because oh, we pay people to do that. We don't have to develop those gifts or train them or do it, right? It's a very real con for the church. Yes. All correct, all true, and amidst all of it, we need to work out, each church, how to wisely pursue this. Is it in the interest of what God is doing in this church, in this community, in this place, to set aside certain leaders for certain tasks by way of paying them. Understood, they're not more important. Understood, it should not lead to the stifling of anything. Understood, it should not lead to burnout, etc., etc. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Something to prayerfully consider as God leads his church, right? Okay, that's the one question. Why do we have paid gifts or roles? Second question. Why are they men? <laughs> Why can't they be women, as elders at least? Have a nice week. We'll see you <laughs> later. <laughs> Come next week. We're going to deal with this next week. It's too much for one day, and I'm adding that as an extra sermon. It's important to do. It's important for us to consider. Um, and we can't do that in five minutes now. So I do want to acknowledge it because I think with it comes a great deal of questions. A great deal of questions for what is God's purpose for women in his church. It's enormous and, and, and it ought to be drawn out. Why is it that this church, for instance, take this line? What is the understanding of the Bible? In what way is this good for the church? In what way does this bless the body? In what ways have we misunderstood it in such ways that it actually harmed the body, right? Those are all very important questions that, I, that I'd love for us to sit on next Sunday. So please, tune in or come along if you want to. It's one of those things we've got to deal with someplace, sometime, and that's the, that's the time and the place, all right? For now, let me wrap this up. Let's conclude and finish off for the day. I want to draw attention to 
the wisdom, the grandeur, the majesty, and the brilliance of God in eldership, particularly in the role of eldership. Did you notice how extremely restricted the role of elders are? Teach and lead. And I put it to you, those two things are connected. Lead by teaching. Lead by teaching. You know why that is brilliant? Because an elder cannot teach what Jesus did not teach. And for that matter, a, a, a prophet functioning among the people cannot prophesy outside of what Jesus brought. Neither can an evangelist do anything outside of what Jesus did. I or any elder cannot teach or lead, therefore, the church of God where the word of Jesus does not go. Do you know what that means? It means that Jesus is in charge. Jesus is leading. If we're faithful in this, if elders understand that they are merely under the chief elder, whose word it is that they are to teach, and the only way in which they are to lead, what, what is not blessed about that for the church? I almost want to say in an ideal sense, what cannot go well for the church? And I'll add to that what we'll do next week if the other gifts of teaching lived out by all people in God's church is lived out. What cannot go well? In fact, it can only go well when Jesus leads his church. And so I can take any example that is facing elders. Let's look at the shed, you know, and, and what we're doing in Pathway Shed. If elders, together with all of Pathway, work out what is ministry, mission, and church and holding out the grace of God look like in East Devonport, as we go about our business in solving that puzzle, the main question is very simple. What does Jesus say about it? What does Jesus want to do here? What do we know about what he wants to do from the Bible? What do we discern about the specifics where he's leading us with his Holy Spirit? What might he be saying to us by those who have perhaps the gift of prophecy, who brings that to the elders, who weighs it up, who considers it, who prays over it? What are the gifts, the, the charismata that he has given his church to perform that ministry that we want to perform? Those are all ways in which Jesus is leading his church. It's not elders at all. And we can praise God that this is how he seeks for his church to be led. He's wise, he knows, and we can be grateful. All right, let me pray for us, and then we'll, yep, we'll, we'll finish up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gift to your church of elders. We thank you for our elders. Lord, we confess that we very often misunderstood or misapply how you want to lead your church. 
I ask that you would bring us to a place where we understand well, where we believe well. I pray for our elders that they would lead well. I ask that you'd fill them for the task. I ask that you would grow them in Christ's likeness. And Father, again, I pray for those to whom you've given very capable gifts, that they would come to the place where they are meant to bear on the life of your body. Fan it into flame, raise it up, make it clear, and may the end result yet again be, as we pray, that your body will be fruitful, faithful, and bringing great glory to you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you that you care. Thank you that you're capable, far more than we ever will be. And we do pray, will you lead your church here? In every way and in everything. We ask, we pray, in your wonderful name. Amen.